I'm uh, carrying on this morning our Philippians series. We plan just to do this for a few months, and we're in chapter 2, and only halfway through chapter 2, and so we uh, actually this series will take us right into the summer, and we'll land it just before the summer starts. And today I'm preaching, the title of my preach is Your Salvation. You can put the title slide up, thanks. And Philippians, um, it actually should, yeah, Philippians 2, 12, I plan to preach 12 to 18, but I couldn't do my preach. Um, I could only get verses 12 and 13. There's just so much packed in there. J.L. Duncan, a, a, a man who, who is a commentator on the scripture, says, uh, he says, Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible about sanctification. And I, I 100% agree with him. Now, you might say, well, Rob, um, what, what is sanctification? Because it's not a word that we use every day, is it? It's not like we go out for dinner with our friends and we go, you know what I'm going to have today? I'm going to have some crab to sanctify myself or something like that. It's just not an everyday word. And um, basically, sanctification is the present part of our salvation. If we've already been saved, what comes after our self, that, that, um, that moment of salvation is this present part of the journey. And it's where we, it's a process actually. It's something that happens progressively. It's where we are becoming more and more each day, little by little, more of who we already are. See, when we were first saved, when we, the, the, when we met Jesus Christ and we put our, our trust in Him, and that's what salvation is, is to come to Christ and to put our trust in the work that He did for us. Christ came to earth. He was, uh, he was God. He became um, a human being, was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life, never sinned once in all of His life. And like every other human being that has ever lived, Christ did not sin. He is the only human being that did not deserve to go to the cross or deserve to die, and yet he took our place on the cross. They, we call his death a substitutionary death. It's a substitutionary atonement because he was our substitute. He went to the cross and took on our sin. Not the idea of our sin, not the, the general concept of sin. He literally took our sin. My every perverted thought, my every despicable action of my life, every sinful moment of my life, Christ bore. He became my sin, the scripture says. He became all of our sin and all of the world's sin through every age. And then on top of that, he bore the punishment that sin deserved so that we would not have to bear it, so that we could have forgiveness. And then after dying upon the cross, he was raised from the dead as a promise or a, a sign that his sacrifice was accepted and a promise to us that we too can have resurrection life. And so what took place on that day when we trusted in Christ was we were born again. And we were singing about it today. Oh, glorious day. Not a oh, glorious day to come for us who are believers. If you're on a spiritual journey, that day may still be coming for you. I pray God it is, and maybe it could be today. But for us who believe, there was a day. I remember I was 13 years old when I came to Christ. And on that day, as I received Him as my Lord and Savior, as I received the forgiveness of my sins, I was born again. The Bible says I was justified, another fancy Bible word, but the simplest understanding is I was made just as if I had never sinned. I was made righteous. Christ is righteous. He is perfect in every way, perfect in kindness, perfect in patience, perfect in love, perfect in holiness, perfect in purity. And when I came to Christ, that perfectness was put upon me. So even though I'm not actually perfectly patient, I have the status of one who is perfectly patient. Although I'm not actually perfectly holy, I have the status of one who is perfectly holy. And none of us think that we're perfect, do we? 
if you, if you do think that, yeah, it's my wake-up call for you today. You are not perfect. And I know that I'm not. And yet when I came to Christ, He, um, he gave me the, the righteous standing, the righteous status that He has. And so when God looks upon me, He sees Christ. And then my journey from that day, this moment that happened in my past when I was 13 years ago, so 23 years ago, from that day, you guys realize that that's not true, hey? So from that day, there's been a progressive journey, and the evidence of that transformation has begun to be seen in my life, slowly in some areas, like patience, um, but, but surely God is at work in my life. And nothing about the ups and downs of my present journey should in any way undermine my confidence in what took place in the past. Nothing I preach today, nothing anybody ever preaches to you should ever undermine your confidence in what took place on that glorious day. Jesus did it. When he said on the cross, it is finished, it meant that what needed to be done was done. And all we have to do is receive it once. And we're born again and we're saved. And our journey after that might be up and down like this as we be, become more like Jesus Christ. And on the days that we're up, we think, well, I know I'm saved. On the days that we're down, we might say, I don't feel like I'm saved, but I know I am because of what happened in the past. Amen. And so we're going to dive into that scripture. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and I want to approach this with, I want to help you a little bit as I preach this to help you to study Scripture as well in your own personal devotional times as well. So we're going to read three different translations of the Bible of these two verses. We're going to start off with from the ESV. If I read a Scripture to you and I don't tell you what the translation is, in this church it's always the ESV. It's our standard text that we use for studying Scripture. It's a word-by-word -word translation or a literal translation, and so it's accurate. Every word in the Hebrew and every word in the Greek gets translated, and so you can go to each word and see what the Greek or Hebrew is. And so we're going to start other Bibles like that, or the New King James, or the New American Standard Bible, or the New Revised Standard Version. Those are all word-for-word -word translations. So let's read it today. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore... My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, if English is not your first language, reading that can be a little bit tough to actually understand what he's saying. And so there are other translations of the Bible that are called um, dynamic translations. Instead of translating every word. They take the sentence and say, what is the meaning of that sentence? I'm translating the meaning of that sentence so we can understand it but more clearly. And it's, it's, it, has, it allows us, even our children will find it much easier to read those Bibles. But many of us, many of you are not English first language and it's much easier to understand it when you read from a translation like that. It's easier for me to understand it and I'm English first language. And this is normally the translation I would use when I put a text up and I'm preaching on it here although it wouldn't be the text I'm studying. In Philippians 2, verse 12 to 13, again, this is New Living Translation, says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Can you see that as we read that, it, it sheds more light on that verse. And then we'll go to, lastly to the message, which is a paraphrase. And by paraphrase, you know when somebody's telling you what somebody else said, like I was chatting to Dorcas and this is what she said 
And I'll go, I'm paraphrasing it, which means I'm giving you the meaning rather than the actual specific words that she used. And so that's what a paraphrase is for us. And so Eugene Peterson's, the message says it like this. What I'm getting at, friends, is that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. And so the, what we see here is that the, the translations that are word for word anchor the text so that we don't drift too far away from what it says. But these other texts shed light on what it is so we can understand what's being said. And when you come to study a piece of scripture, it's a good idea to read all three of those different versions to help you to learn. You don't need somebody else to teach you. You have the Holy Spirit and you have God's word and you should be growing more and more in your study. Amen. So let's dive into it. Therefore is the first word in this passage. And uh, you know, one of the rules of interpreting scripture is this, is that whenever there's a therefore, you've got to ask the question, what is it? Therefore, exactly, because it's referring back to something that's come before it. And it's done that in this text as well. It may be referring to the verses 6 or 5 to 11 that come before it that we've been preaching over the last few weeks on the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. And, uh, or it might be pointing back to Philippians 1 verse 27, just a few verses before that in the first chapter. And it says this there, and it's probably both actually. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of, hear you are, sorry, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so God starts, uh, God, Paul starts a section, God speaking through him, saying, like, this is what I want you to do. A life that is worthy of the gospel is you guys standing as one for the gospel. And that means unity, that we should be in unity. Then he goes on in the first few verses of chapter 2 to say, in order to, be, to live in unity, here's what you need to do. You need to humble yourself and put the interests of others ahead of your own interests. Now, we know that's not that easy. How do we do that? Because in our natural state, we put ourselves first. Amen? It's, we, and we always, like, we drift back into that place as well. And he says, this is how you do it. You follow the example of Christ. And so then he goes to that beautiful passage that we've been preaching through. And we've seen this progression that Jesus has gone from humility, to, uh, from humility to obedience to exaltation. From humbling himself and becoming a man to radical obedience even to death and then to exaltation and vindication. And then Paul says to us as he goes to verse 12 and 13, he says, now I want you to put your faith into practice. And he's, he doesn't start with the rules. See, if we were writing the Bible, we would put the last chapters at the beginning of the book. This is how I want you to behave. I want you to do this. Stop sleeping around. If you're sleeping around, you save sex for marriage. And stop thinking about that sexy chick in your office. That's not, that's not where your lustful mind should be wandering. Don't uh, waste your money and run after and be greedy. And we'd put out all these lists of rules of things to do. And we would, like, we would, oh, we would, and that's what religion is. We try and live that way. What, what Paul does in scriptures, he puts the doctrine first. And when we think of doctrine, Many of us think of like dusty old books. Hey, like say to you, look, you need to go study some doctrine. You think, oh, please, God, don't make me do that. You know, you've got to find these thick, confusing books to read. But that's not what doctrine is. Doctrine is actually a revelation. It's 
who Jesus is. And so when we speak about doctrine first, it speaks about seeing Jesus first. We first see him, then we practice our faith. We see him, and then we practice its revelation and then behavior. And that's how the New Testament life differs from a religious system or an ethical system. See, in those systems, I tell you what to do, and you try as hard as you can to do those things. But, but, but the Bible nowhere teaches us that we should walk in obedience before we've become Christians. We first have to have this encounter with Jesus, be born again, be given a new heart, have seen him and fallen in love with him and surrendered to him. Then we can begin this journey of becoming more like him. We don't begin the journey and once we've crossed a certain line, go, I'm, I'm 50% along the way, now I can become a Christian. No, no, we were the worst of the worst, the sinners of sinners, and, on, and Christ met us there, and from that place, we go on this beautiful journey. And so for the believer to live a holy life, we, um, we, we're not put under the law. We don't get a set of rules that we've got to keep. It's not like you should read your Bible for 15 minutes a day. Like this is the bare minimum. If you're going to be a, a proper Christian, okay, you've got to read your Bible for 15 minutes. Anything less than that and you are second rate, like maybe not even a Christian. You've got to, you've got to pray. You've got to pray for your pastor every day. Like it makes no difference what comes up. If you're a real Christian, you've got to pray for your, your leaders and then you've got to do this and do that. Obviously, that's not how it works. We have a, we, our obedience and our behavior flows out of a higher freedom. If you believe this, any doctrine about Jesus, any truth about who he is, if you believe this, then it's inevitable that you will live like this. Because, because knowing him and knowing what he's done leads to a way of living that is inevitable from that revelation. And so that's a higher freedom that comes to us. And so the most practical teachings we can do on marriage or parenting or how you deal with your finances or how you conduct yourself in the workplace is not 10 lists of things that you should do. And that can be helpful. I can tell you about some of the things that I've done wrong in my marriage, some of the things I've done right, and they can be helpful for you. I can go to the scriptures and teach some practical things, but it has to be on the foundation of who Jesus is. And so the most practical Teaching for everyday living for a Christian is any teaching on Jesus Christ, on who he is. As we've done it these last few weeks, and we've, we've kind of pulled back the layers on the beauty and the wonder of our Lord, that um, enables us to live the God life. Otherwise, we're just doing TED Talks. And so this passage that Paul, in this passage, Paul will call us to obedience, but only after he's shown us Jesus. He's shown us the Son of God who humbled himself. The son of man who was obedient and radically obedient even to death on a cross. And Jesus, the son of man, who was exalted and vindicated. And having seen him, he says, now you follow that same path as well. And so we come with humility. We have the same mind, the same attitude as Christ. So when we're overlooked or, we, or somebody says something about us that's unkind or, or our rights have been pressed down and we want to react because of it, we just say, actually, I'm going to have the same humility as my hero. It's the one that I love more than anybody else, the one who I want to be like more than anybody else. I'm going to have the same attitude as him. If he could be maligned and not fight for his rights, and so can I. And then we walk in obedience because he was radically obedient. And so ourselves, led by the Spirit, walk in the same obedience. And then finally, we enjoy the fullness of our salvation. Salvation is not some narrow place. It's not a 90-centimeter cell that we live in. You know, Nehat said to us, he said he was dancing in this little cell. He was, he was so full of joy. He was in a narrow place, but, but he, was, he had so much freedom and so much joy. And when salvation, 
when we walk in the fullness of our salvation, no matter what our situation, it is the most glorious and wonderful place to be. It's where peace and joy overflow in our lives. And so I want to I just carry on with this. And Paul goes all over the place. You know, in the, in the original Greek, there were no even spaces in the words. There was no punctuation. And so Paul's sentences just seemed to be like these. There was no full stop. So the whole letter is one sentence, basically. And so they've got to figure out where the sentences are. And Paul seems to have ideas that flow into ideas. And we've got to tease them out a little bit. So let's start with this part. He says, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And by this, he means that um, Christ-like living, becoming like Christ, is not a Sunday exercise. You don't put on your, your Sunday best. Johnny, you're looking smart today, bro. Yo, why don't you stand for a moment? No, I'm joking. And we don't just put on our Sunday best and, uh, and put on our smile and, you know, we kind of, all the dirty thoughts we leave behind, all the angry thoughts we leave over there and come in and we, we're like pure and wonderful. And then the moment church is finished, we go home and we strip off those clothes and, and with it those Christ-like attitudes and Monday we back into the, the pigsty again. That's, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that we should, be, we should be the same person when no one's looking as when people are watching us. That's like a definition of integrity. It's a, the kind of unsupervised Christianity that Paul is exhorting these people to live by. And what it means for you and what it means for me is that we take ownership of our own spiritual life. We're not waiting and depending upon the Sunday. Well, if, if this is not a good preacher today, I'm gonna, it's going to be a horrible week. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to grow unless it's a good preacher. And I, and I hope the preach does bring some growth. But it's not going to be enough if you're not spending time with God in His Word if you're not spending time in prayer, if you're not spending time in worship, um, and we've got to take ownership. One of the things that I, I sometimes say to people when I'm counseling them is, I want you to do this one thing, this first step. And then I never have to see them again because, because most people will not take ownership of taking the first step. And then I know that they're not in any way serious or taking ownership of the thing that they're wanting me to counsel them. They want me to be a fairy godmother with a little skirt on like this and my little wand like this. So when they come to me, I just and then their problem is gone like this. That isn't how Christianity works. God doesn't do that with me. When, when, when he's got to deal with my impatience, he doesn't just come like a fairy godmother and so bing, and suddenly I'm patient like this. He tests me and tests me and tests me. And he puts me in a, in a city where the traffic lights take 14 hours to change. <laughs> Dear God, what is going on here, you know? So each time I sit there, I say, thank you, Jesus, for this red traffic light and for these millions of people that have to wait and waste so much time. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But I've got to take ownership for my spiritual life, and you need to take ownership of yours, is what Paul is saying. Paul goes on and he says, with fear and trembling. And uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that we, we'd be shaking like this, that, that somehow we're going to displease God? Some people have this image of God as an old man kind of sitting there, a bit crotchety with a walking stick like this, watching over us waiting for us to make one mistake, and up comes the walking stick, and it's, what, how, like this? We think, well, we go to work, and we have a flat tire, and we go, I knew this was going to happen. I didn't have my quiet time today, and now, look, God's given me a flat tire. You mean, like, where do we get that kind of theology from? You can, you can not have your quiet time and still be okay in the day. Do you know what I mean? Like, we, we've got this wrong mentality, and that's not what Paul means when he says this here. Paul uses the same phrase in another letter, in 1 Corinthians 2, he says this when he speaks about when he came to that church. He says this in verse 3 and 4. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Was Paul saying, I came to you and I was really scared of you. I was scared of what you would do to me when I came to you. There's no ways that's what he's saying. Paul had been stoned and left for dead. He had been beaten, shipwrecked, and various other things. He, he didn't care what happened to him for the sake of the gospel. He wasn't scared of, of the people. Maybe it was, um, was he scared of God? Like, well, if I mess up this preach, then God's going to sort me out. Man, I'm so nervous. I don't, know, I don't know how to bring this. I don't know how to preach this. Paul had preached so many times before this. His theology was probably the most profound theology any human being ever held within himself. And, the, and plus, Paul was, he said to himself, he said, of himself, he says, I was the chief of sinners. You know what that means? You know who the chief is? He's the boss. He's the top. Paul's saying, I was the, the, the top sinner. I was the worst sinner of all. And he was not a liar, and he was not an exaggerator. In Paul's heart, he believed he was the worst of all sinners, and yet he had been shown grace. So he knew what it meant to have his, his, the worst of things being forgiven. and to be. And so he, he knew the mercy and the graciousness of God. He wasn't fearful of that. What did he mean? I think he meant that I'm gonna, I place no confidence in my own ability. I'm, I'm coming, as he says in that, in that scripture there, I'm coming in weakness. He, it was a deliberate choice Paul made not to rely upon what I've called his weak strength, his human strength, but to rely upon the Spirit's power. And I think the same sense is here, that, that we don't have to work at our salvation confidence in our own ability. Like, like I'm a capable person. I can get things done. If something breaks, I'll figure out how to fix it. I've got a good enough brain to, to make a plan. And so we can become confident in ourselves. Like sanctification a plus, baby. I'm going to work hard until I get my A plus for my sanctification. I'm not getting a B like Eugene. I'm getting an A plus for my sanctification. Or we think to ourselves, like, you have no idea how self-controlled I am. I'm going to make Mother Teresa look like the worst of sinners. I'm, I'm killing this project right now. No, no. It's this, it's this awareness of our weakness. It's this awareness of our frailties and actually our bent towards sin. Our our sinfulness has been, that, that part of us that wants to sin has been mortally wounded. It's going to die. There's no question about it. But it's holding on and trying to drag us down the wrong way. And I, and I know that if I allow those things to rule in me, if I depend upon the weakness of my nature, these things will rob me of my salvation. So I'm coming to work at my salvation, but relying not upon my own strength, but upon God. That's what he means when he says, with fear and trembling. Then he says, as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation. This journey from having met Christ and being born again, justified, redeemed, adopted, ransomed, new man, new heart, new, uh, the, the, the laws of God written in my heart and my mind. What a glorious place to be. My eternal destination assured. I now begin this journey with my chest out, my chin up. I'm confident in the God who will, who will lead me. But it's a journey of radical obedience. It was it was Christ's journey was one of radical obedience. It's ours as well. We have, to, we have to obey as God speaks to us. That's one of the reasons, friends, why we raise our children under discipline. You think, like, um, there were three reasons I disciplined my children. It was disrespect, um, rebellion, and negligence. I, I, won't even, I won't go into this thing. But the, the disrespect and the rebellion was, like, I'm talking to you. You need to obey me. I don't want my children to learn the natural consequences of their disobedience. If I tell my children to clean up their room and they don't clean it up, I don't leave it messy for them to deal with that. That's not the sin. The sin is that I told them to do something that they didn't do. I'm teaching them what it means to walk 
in obedience so that when I speak to my children, they obey. In the same day, when the Father speaks, we walk in radical obedience to Him as well. Not out of fear, but out of confidence that He is leading us in the right way. And so the, so the, the question we've got to kind of ask ourselves is, are we growing? Am I just the same person I was a year ago? Or has there been some progress? Am I growing more patient? Am I growing more kind, more loving? Is holiness manifesting more in my life? Am I more pure than I was a year ago? There's no scale. There's no measure here. Like, um, we've got to, um, but there is, a, there is a journey. There's a progression that needs to be made. The commentator Walter Hansen said this. I love this. He says, when the path of obedience to Christ becomes steep and dangerous, pleasure seekers look for an easier way. Religious tourists hunting for sensational entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, and emotional excitement will jump on their newest rides and take quick shortcuts. But they will not be found with pilgrims. That's who you are, friends. They will not be found with pilgrims on the long, hard road following the footsteps of Christ, who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And at this point, I've got to remind you of what I said at the beginning. Paul doesn't write and says, work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. Our salvation is something in the past that has happened, and now we're working it out into our present life. As the NLT says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Thank God he's done that part, and we can rest secure in that as we confidently walk. As I said just now, chest out, chin up, relying upon God moving forward, not bent down, still covered by guilt and condemnation and fear that God's going to come and reject us at any moment. There's this wonderful part in Paul's, number of Paul's letters in Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians, all of them. Paul spends the first part of his letter, especially Colossians and Ephesians, talking about who Christ is and who we are in Christ now. And so Ephesians is amazing. He talks about like we pre we predestined, we are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are ransomed. That's who we actually are. And I remember I was doing the series through Ephesians, and I, man, I wanted to move on to Ephesians 4. Because in Ephesians 4, guess what happens? Paul shifts and says, therefore, um, live a life worthy of the calling. And I want to tell people how to live. Like, live this way. Do this. Do this. And God said, I don't want you to move on there yet. First, you've got to establish in the hearts of people who they are now in Jesus Christ. Imagine a painter with a, with a beautiful canvas here, like this, this whole wall's a canvas, and he puts on the first layer on the canvas like this, and he's going to paint this incredible art piece, and he goes too soon to paint on top of it, and the colors that he puts in on top of that base layer begin to run because he hasn't let it dry. And what needs to happen is the base layer of God's grace in our life needs to dry. This is who we are in Jesus. That has to be set like a foundation that has grown hard and rigid now, ready to take the load on top of it. On top of that, then, we begin to build. And that brings us to this important uh, point where he says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you. This is not our work. This journey that we're on is like, man, this is going to be so freaking hard. I've got to be like Jesus. I'm like, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to be one little bit patient. I don't even want to be patient. I like being impatient. Or I, I told you guys a story about the one day I was driving to work, and I said to God, I, just come, I, was, I had been backslidden. I'd come back to the Lord. We, Linda and I, I think, had just got married. I'd been drinking. I'd, I didn't have a long period in my life where I drank, but I did drink, and I, would, um, and I quite enjoyed getting drunk, to be quite honest. And um, I said this to the Lord. I said, God, how are we going to work this out? Because you tell me you're going to give me the desires of my heart, 
One of the desires of my heart is to go out with my friends and get drunk. But you tell me I shouldn't get drunk. How are we going to work this thing out? Like, like, how's Rob Hutton going to sort this thing out? You know what God did? He just, as I'm walking along, he shifted the desires of my heart. As I fixed my eyes on Jesus, he did the inner work so that it began to flow from here instead of his rules from the outside. 2 Chronicles 32 verse 8. I've been reading that this yesterday morning. And it's about the king of Assyria attacking is, uh, Judah. And um, Hezekiah says this to the people. With him, the, the leader of um, Assyria, is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. Is that amazing? With, with, with them is arm of flesh. And what Paul is saying is, don't rely upon your arm of flesh, your resolve and your, I'm going to get this done. Rely upon God to get it done. Paul's teaching that we, that we have to um, recognize the absolute necessity of his empowering presence in our lives. Not only does God enable us to be more patient when we can't, or more kind, or more loving, or more pure in those moments, like, how can I do that? He gives us the desire as well, is what the Bible says. Not only can God give me the power to withstand the temptation of drinking when I go out with my friends and getting drunk, He gives me the desire to want to live that kind of life as well. Isn't that amazing? And so God works in us even as we're at work as well. There's this, this working of, of us cooperating with God in this journey. And that's what this part is about. When he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's like, okay, Lord, I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to take the step, but you need to be there when I take it to give me the strength to stand there and then give me the strength to take the next step. And then we look back after a season of our life and we say, God, I'm so grateful for where you've brought me. And it's not to a narrow religious place that he takes us to. Like our life is colorless and now we're like these super spiritual, boring as hang believers, you know, like this idea that heaven is us sitting on a cloud with a harp. That sounds like hell. I don't know what that is. That is not, uh, uh, no harps for me, please. I want to go and explore the glories of what's to come. But this place that he takes us into isn't this narrow box that had found himself in. It's this spacious place that God wants to bring us into. The more the king comes into our life, the more peace and joy comes. In, uh, I think it's Romans 14, 17, it says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Tell the Lebanese that, because there was lots of eating. But it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And that's what we want. When we, when we eat and drink and get married, when we, when we go on adventures or do whatever we do, it's, it's satisfying that hunger inside of us for peace and joy. When we walk in righteousness more and more, when we are more patient, we find ourselves, well, this is a beautiful place to be. When we are more loving, when we are more kind, we thought, like, this is, we never knew life could be this rich. We thought richness was when we were selfish and grabbing, but in generosity and in kindness, my life, it's like multicolored. Um, Lastly, he says, for his good pleasure. He does all of this, this working in us, as we work with him, his, he works it for his good pleasure. Do you know that God loves his son? Do you know that God the Father loves his son? I, I mentioned that book a couple of weeks ago, um, Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves, and, and I read one quote from him, and this is a part of that quote. It says, Jesus, listen carefully, has satisfied the mind and heart of the infinite God for eternity. But Jesus has satisfied the mind and the heart of God, of the infinite God for eternity. From eternity past, 
The father has been completely satisfied in his love for the son. And the son towards the father and the father and the son to the Holy Spirit. God, the father, loves his son. And his purpose in our lives is to make us more like his son each and every day. That when he looked down upon us, the fragrance that comes from our life is no longer the stink of the rotting dead man that has been crucified with Christ, but the fragrance of the living Christ in us. And so every step we take with the power of God is a step towards Christ-likeness, towards what we call maturity. That's the process of sanctification is to become more mature. Not in a boring way, not like, oh, you're so mature, but in an exuberant, vibrant life, full of life way. That's what Paul means when he says in Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29, Him, speaking of Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The actual Greek word there means perfect, that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that He powerfully works within me. So Paul's saying, I'm, I'm doing a work in your life as a teacher, as an apostle, to make you come to full, to full maturity in Jesus Christ, because that's the purpose of God in our lives. Michelangelo once said, next slide, the sculpture is already complete within the marble. How, how, how do you do that? How do you carve that? Hey, <laughs> it's insane. Hey? I cut off the bottom half of his body because Michelangelo was full explicit. There's a... The sculpture is already complete within the marble block. Before I start my work, it's already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. And this journey that we're on is a little bit like this. Won't the worship team please come up? God, in His divine grace, has carved out a block of marble. And that's you. That's you, beloved, as Paul says. That's you. You are this, this, this block of marble. And what can't be fully seen yet is the image of Christ, this, the, the David statue that was still in that block. But there's some traces of it that are in there. And it's up to us, by constant surrender, by constant endeavor and dependence upon God, to chip away the pieces of sin and the infirmities and the corruptions so that Christ may be revealed in us. God doesn't want us to disappear. He's made us all unique. God doesn't want Eugene to be like me or me to be like Eugene. He doesn't want Linda to be like Leah or Leah to be like Linda. He's made us all unique. But there's a unique picture of us where Christ is most fully seen. When we are most patient, most kind, most loving, most generous, most pure, most holy. And that, that is God's good purpose, His pleasure to work that out in us.